Good morning. So good to see you this morning. Take your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And just again, great to see you. Uh, look forward to a great week this week. We've got Vacation Bible School coming up. Uh, you'll get a reminder to pray for all of that at the end of the service today. Uh, but just already want to say thank you to all of the volunteers, Miss Michelle, everybody who's worked really hard to make it a great week already. If you haven't got a chance to stick your head in the sanctuary, do that and take a look at the set for this week. A big thank you to Michael and Tori, Amanda Larry for setting that up. Just take a look before you leave. It's a lot of fun. Are you gonna, you're going to wish you could go to vacation Bible school, even if you're an adult, all right? Uh, but it's going to be a great week and uh, be in prayer for them. But we're in Ephesians chapter uh, 6 this morning. We're finishing up a study through the book of Ephesians on uh, Sunday mornings. And after covering a lot of ground at the end of this letter, at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul begins chapter 6 with the word, finally, which means he's ready to close the letter. All right, he's ready to wrap things up. He's ready to land the plane. But like a good preacher, when Paul says, and to close, what he really means is, y'all sit tight. I got a bunch of other stuff I want to say. All right. So he says, finally, but he has a lot of other really good things he needs to teach us. And after spending a lot of this book reaching into the heavenlies and pulling down into view all of these gospel, rich gospel truths that are true about us in Christ Jesus, all this wonderful gospel truth about who we are in Christ, helping us understand what it looks like to practically live those things out in all areas of our life, what Paul ends this letter by reaching back out into the unseen spiritual world, and he pulls back into view another spiritual reality that impacts all of our lives, and it's the reality that we have an unseen, powerful, spiritual enemy in this world who's seeking to, to destroy everything in our life. After spending all of that time, think about this celebrating a gospel that saves us and that's at work in us to heal and to resurrect and to restore all the broken areas of our life and all the broken relationships in our life. Paul says, all that's true, but before I go, I need you to know, I need to tell you something before I close this letter, that all of that is true, but you also have a real enemy that wants to destroy all those things. And in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning, what, where I'm getting at is we're going we're gonna to be studying about the devil this morning. I know your head's popped off your pillow this morning thinking, I want to get to church and learn about the devil today. But maybe some of you did. I, some people find this a very, as a very interesting subject. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, I uh, would... At times, every once in a while, uh, not too much, but just every once in a while we'd survey the students and say, hey, let us know some things that you would like us to address, some things you'd like us to teach you about. And, and when we did that, almost every time, you'd always have two go to the top of the list. And it was dating and the devil, all right? Which, you know, made sense. Those usually go together, so <laughs> I was like, how about we just approach this to get, put those together and we'll teach on it, all right? But it's not just teenagers. A lot of us are really, even people who don't know Jesus, who, who aren't Christians, that are very interested in this subject. You say, how do you know that? Go to AMC Theater. I guarantee you right now, one of the movies there has something to do with an exorcism or a demon or a devil. People find this very interesting. Even in the church, we find it very interesting. We just need to be, always remember that we have the Bible. We have the Bible that gives us very clear instruction and gives us very clear information about what we should think with the devil, what the demons are, what they're not, and how we engage in spiritual warfare. And this is one of those texts that we're going to look at this morning. So stand with your Bibles open. Ephesians chapter 6. I'll begin to read in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as for shoes... For your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in, my, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Would you have a seat as I pray? Lord, I pray a simple prayer this morning that as a result of being in your word, that you would help us to be strong in you. Lord, as this text says, help us to stand firm in your strength. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. God, I pray that you'd point us to Jesus and the deeper rest that we need in him. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this text, even as we read it, is a kind of a sober up, let's wake up, like let's go. It's got that tone to it, a kind of passage. All right, The Apostle Paul wants us to grasp the reality of spiritual warfare. And he wants us to grasp three things concerning the devil and demons and the spiritual realm. Um, and this is the first one that he wants us to be aware of, that there is real spiritual warfare happening around us. There's real spiritual warfare happening this morning. There's real spiritual warfare happening when we just sang songs just a few minutes ago in this room. There's real spiritual warfare happening in this room and in our lives as we're listening to this message and walking through this passage. When you leave here, there will be a real, uh, there's a real spiritual battle that you will face in your life. Real warfare is where we want to begin. All right, to put it plainly, there is a real spiritual war being waged around us and against us, and we have a real enemy, and his name is Satan. If you believe that morning, this morning, say amen. amen. All right, that's true even if you didn't say amen this morning. That's what Paul wants us to understand. When it comes to this the spiritual realm, there is a real battle, a spiritual warfare that is happening. All right, now, when it comes to spiritual warfare, when it comes to demons, when it comes to the devil, we tend to fall into two camps. And C.S. Lewis explains it really well. He says there are two equal and opposite areas that a race, a human race, can fall into about the demons and the devil. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And they themselves, the devil and demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail the magician and the materialist with the same Delight. All right, so what C.S. Lewis is saying there is that on one extreme, some people are tempted to read a passage like this and to bring the devil and to bring demons and to bring spiritual darkness into every little situation. Like these are the kind of people that just blame the devil on everything, right? Oh, you know, we're, we're, we're late. It's, the devil's making us late. No, we just maybe need to be better at being on time, right? Man, a car won't start up. It's the devil. It's Satan's in these pistons. But lay your hands on it. Well, that, that may be true, but you may just need a new battery. You may just need to take it to a mechanic, right? There's a tendency for some to over-obsess, right? And there, there's a, that's, a, that's, a dangerous, it, it, that's a dangerous extreme, obsessing, kind of focusing 
on the devil and demons, give any more credit than he's due, right? Wanting to cast demons out of everything and everybody, looking for a demon under every bush, right? And then there's another opposite extreme that Lewis warns us about, and he says it's disbelieving, but I also believe kind of in that arena is dismissing the presence, the powerful presence of demonic forces at work around us. And this is a word for believers this morning, because a lot of believers, I just want to address where I think a lot of believers can land here in these two dangerous extremes, is we kind of can land on the disbelieving side, but it's, it may not be that you, don't, that you disbelieve the presence of Satan and his work in the world and in your life, you just dismiss it. Maybe you just, you know, think that, you know, it's something that why do we need to spend... You think, Pastor, I'm a little too sophisticated for this Satan stuff and this devil stuff, and this kind of dark, and this kind of weird, and I think it's out there, but can we just be kind to each other and just care for each other and just talk about Jesus, right? Some of us may think that way. Some of us may take it lightly in this sense. Maybe this is the tension in this text for you, is that you read this and you think, you know, I'm not sure I should be worried about this in the sense of, like, who am I? Right? Is, is, am I really, it's like the devil warring against me. Am I that big of a threat? I can't find my keys in my wallet half the time. Is, am, I, am I really on hell's big hit list? Right? I can understand Paul needs this. I mean, he's literally writing the Bible right here. I mean, he's like a disciple, like taken over the first century world by storm. Just, he's, he seems like an awesome Christian. I, I just don't see the devil being after me the same way he was at Paul. Maybe Paul needs this instruction. Some over-obsess over, over it. Some take it way too lightly. Both extremes are really, really dangerous. And this text is meant to sober us up and to understand and to be aware that the devil is real. He's a real enemy in the life of a Christian. And that doesn't mean we fear him. We don't fear him. We don't hyper-focus on him and demons. But we also don't take him lightly. All right? We don't take him lightly. He's really dangerous. He's really destructive. And he really hates you if you're a Christian. Because you're a child of God. You say, well, why is that? Because he hates God. And if you're a child of God, that means you're a redeemed image bearer of God. And he hates you. And he's on mission in this world to destroy us. Jesus said that. Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, I've come so that you may have life and have it abundantly. But he says the thief comes only to what? Steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's ultimately what Satan is in the business of doing. And it's a business open 24 hours a day in all of our lives if we're in Christ. Believer, know this, that he knows your soul is secure in the grasp of Almighty God. He knows that's true, so now his mission is to destroy everything in your life, in this life. Peter, he's destructive. You know, it's been said, and he's bad. He's, he's, a, he's, he's less powerful than God, way more powerful than us. And he's really destructive. And he's really evil. It's true, and we say it a lot, that God is a really, really good God. And the devil is a really, really bad devil. And we're his enemy. And he's our enemy. Peter describes him like this. 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to what? To devour. The devil is out hunting. He's hungry. And he's really evil. That word devour right there. Anybody ever watch the Discovery Channel? You know what you don't want to be on the Discovery Channel? A gazelle. Somebody just passed the pop quiz right there. A plus. A gazelle. If you're a gazelle and you make the show, that's not good. They don't have shows just for gazelles. They're never going to have gazelle week on Discovery Channel. We know that, right? Like we know what it's like to see 
the, the lion prowling, crawling through the grass. When the lion gets, and when the lion gets the gazelle, he doesn't pull out a napkin and a fork and set the table. You know, he rips it from limb to limb. With his teeth, he rips it apart. That's, the, that's, what's Paul, that's what Paul's thinking about. That's what that word means. That's the word picture right here. It's describing a wild animal that's captured its prey and is destroying it. Here's what Peter and Paul are getting at. Christian, you and I have an enemy who hates us, who longs to rip you limb from limb. He's set on destroying your life. He knows he can't touch your soul, so he's going to do everything he can to blow up other areas of your life, to blow up your marriage, to blow up your home, to blow up your family, to blow up all those different areas of your life, to blow up your influence, to blow up your reputation. And it's a very organized attack. Paul says in verse 11 that he's scheming. It's organized. The Greek word scheme there, it conveys the idea of an organized craftiness, of deception. He's a deceptive schemer. He's plotting. He's strategizing. He's manipulating in order to what? To bring destruction in your life. And the strategy that he uses to bring destruction into our life always involves two things. Accusation and temptation. Revelation 20 says, calls him, gives him this name. He's the accuser of the brethren. And he loves to use the tactic of accusation. You know why? Because it kills your confidence. It robs you of feeling assured of God's love for you. And if he can keep you weighed down with condemnation and guilt as a child of God, you'll begin to doubt God's love for you. And it'll make you more susceptible to sin. And it'll sideline you and make you ineffective in the kingdom of God. He also will wreak havoc in your life through temptation. And he's really, really good at tempting people and causing people to fall to temptation. Why? Because he's a really, really good liar. Satan's a liar. You say, well, that's not nice. I, I thought we're not supposed to call people a liar. I didn't call him that. Jesus called him that. If Jesus calls somebody a liar, he's a liar. He said in John 8, 44, Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That helps us understand why he's so good at destroying people's lives, areas of our life through temptation because he's a masterful liar. Because here's what temptation is. It's Satan holding up a sin. It's Satan holding up in, in, in our view a way of life, a way of thinking, a way to behave that doesn't align with God's word, that's outside of his good design for the way things should work. And he baits us to partake in whatever that is by promising a short-term pleasure, but he's really good at hiding the hook. He promises us that what the Bible calls sin, that he holds out in front of us, is really, really what it is, is it's God holding out on you. And if you, he promises you that if you'll partake in it, it'll satisfy the desires of your heart, and it will not cost you, but it always does, because he's a liar. It destroys. Look at the very first time Satan ever tempted man. Genesis, or think about it, Genesis chapter 3. What is he doing? He's holding that forbidden fruit in front of them, and he's lying to them. Surely you won't die. God's holding out on you, right? His ways aren't best for you. He's tempting them. He's tempting them to turn from God and to not believe that God's ways are best, that God can't be trusted. And he says, eat up, and they eat up. And what is the very next thing that happens? Complete, utter destruction. And he, he has worked, he's worked on that tactic. He's fine-tuned that tactic. And he continues to use it to destroy lives, even right here in 2023. He lies and he kills and he lies in order to kill. And your life is under demonic attack this morning. You say, well, 
Okay, that sounds a little extreme, all right? Demonic attack. That sounds uh, pretty flashy and uh, it sounds kind of over the top. I'm not sure that that's true, that my life is under demonic attack. Well, be aware that he works to take believers out through extraordinary and ordinary means and methods. A lot of times when we think of demonic activity, we're looking for the extraordinary, we're looking for the obvious, dark, scary activity, that kind of stuff. And Satan, hey, sometimes he attacks that way. He, he's, you know, definitely attacking people in ways like that, even throughout our world today. And he may get somebody hooked on witchcraft and dark arts or something demonically dramatic, but he also loves to attack in subtle ways. In ordinary ways, like trying to get to you to establish patterns in your life of compromise to where you're giving in over and over again to what feels like a little temptation, not a big deal, little temptation here, little temptation there, but it's slowly leading you down a road that's going to destroy areas of your life. Think about how in Ephesus, when Paul shows up, remember in Acts, we studied this, we studied the, the planting of this church that he's, he's now, he's, he's writing back to it, it's, it's, thrived and God's used it for a number of years and he, here's, he's, he's writing back to this church but he's the one who planted it remember when he goes into Ephesus originally and they're preaching the gospel in that school and there's like crazy like extraordinary stuff happening people are demon possessed they're throwing their like wizardry spell books in this fire it's this over the top demonic activity that was very obvious extraordinary that's the way that Satan was taking them down originally But then, you know what happens? Years after he writes this letter, later on in Revelation, we see Jesus write a letter back to this church. And you know how Satan is taking them down then? What he's done is he's tempted them over the course of time, little by little, to what? Forget their first love. Ordinary. He takes us down through the extraordinary, but also through the ordinary. And many of us today, many of us in this room, are in danger right now because he's taking us down in ordinary ways. And he's, hey, he's not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry to destroy your life. He didn't have to destroy your life all at once. He doesn't have to do something extraordinary to take you down. He can take you down little by little. And his end goal is always the same, whether it's through extraordinary ways or ordinary ways. It's to destroy you and as many people around you as he can with sin and brokenness in your life. In this text, what it's telling us is that's, that's the activity that we're surrounded by. That's what's going on in our life. He's dispatching his demons to do that dirty work in our life. That there's a real spiritual realm that we can't see that interacts with this, with this realm that we inhabit with our five senses that's real. And those two overlap. There's real spiritual warfare that is happening. And Paul's saying you can't afford to not live in a sober awareness of that truth. And to also not get confused about where the battle's at. Notice that he says there, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You're wrestling against a bunch of demonic forces and in heavenly places. Why does he throw that in there? Right? Because a lot of our problems, don't amen this right here, are people problems. Right? I didn't want you guys amen and you ladies amen. And yet people, he's my people problem right there. She's my people problem right there. Didn't want you to get in trouble this morning. But a lot of our problems are people problems. 
But what this passage helps us understand is my main battle, your main battle is not with your spouse. Your main battle is not with your child. Your main battle is not with your grumpy neighbor or your co-worker or the people around you. People are not the problem. People are the mission field. There's an enemy behind all of that relational conflict. That's where the real warfare is at. We're called to love people. We're called to love our neighbor and stand against the devil. Sometimes we flip that. We want to stand against the neighbor. No, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and power. We have a real spiritual enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy. And he's scheming to do that in our life. And he is a, he's an evil, bad enemy. And he's not to be trifled with. I want to be very clear this morning. We do not fear him. We know that he cannot touch our soul. I don't believe there's any scriptural evidence and support that the devil can possess a spirit-filled believer. But he's still dangerous. And he's not to be trifled with. He is not to be trifled with. I remember when I, we were little, we uh, would sing a song in kids' church. Or sometimes at VBS. Remember that song, I Got the Joy? I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Because some people know about it, all right? I, I liked that song when I was little. Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart. Tuesday. And then it went to my favorite verse because I was a boisterous kid. Just loved shouting in church. Especially when you got permission. You know, just make a little scene. So, and, and then you went to the second verse. And if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on, attack, ouch. And everybody like jumped up. <laughs> sit on, attack, ouch. If you weren't raised in church, you're like, what is he singing right now? What are you talking about? But it just kept going. And if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on, attack. And everybody went, ouch. I think it was sit on attack today. I think that was the rest of the song. And even when I was a little kid, I was like, who tells somebody to sit on attack? Like, what kind of comeback is that? What kind of attack strategy is that? Right? I'm not even sure that would, like, harm him. I think that would make him more irritated and mad. Right? But praise God. Like, we don't go through the rest of our life telling Satan to sit on attack. Praise God. He's given us a better way to engage in spiritual warfare. And that's what we're going to find right here. We're going to run real quick through the way that he says to engage in spiritual warfare right here. This is really good news. This is really, really encouraging because what this shows us is there's a real battle, there's a real enemy, but he has really given us everything that we need to flourish in the midst of spiritual warfare. So not only do we have real warfare, we also have real weapons. And I want to make this point that throughout God's Word, there are, in New Testament... There are descriptions about the way that early church leaders and believers dealt with demonic activity. Descriptions. And then there are prescriptions as to how we deal with it. Be careful that you go to the New Testament to areas where it's clear that it's a prescribed way to deal with demonic forces and Satan and even evil in our own life. And this is one of those places. There's a shift after Acts from Romans to the end of Revelation That's where we find prescribed ways to deal with demonic forces. And this is one of the main passages right here. And he gives us some armor. Now, as we think about this armor, look at verse 11. It says, you need to put on the whole armor of God. In verse 13, he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. In other words, put all of it on and put all of it on right now. Every day, there's an intentionality that's being communicated right here and like an immediacy, all right? 
do this right now. This is an important checklist to make sure you're checking off every day in your life. If you're like me, when you leave your house or you leave a place, I'm always like, we went on a trip this week. It's like everybody got their phone. Everybody got their wallet, all right? You got your keys, got your ID, right? Got us guys, you probably leave the house thinking that way. It's way more important to make sure that this list is checked off in your life before you go out into the world each day than you remember in your wallet or your phone. So, That's important to remember. Also, as we're thinking about the armor right here, know that this isn't just stuff that Paul's making up, that he's pulling a lot of this right out of the book of Isaiah, uh, where there it's referred to the armor of the Messiah, which is really, really helpful because this is gospel armor that he's going to walk us through here in just a moment. And this is also, uh, Paul is in prison, and so he would have just been sitting there looking at a Roman guard, certainly, who would have been dressed in ways that would have reminded him of these pieces of armor. And so he takes that and uses that to give us an illustration of how we need to suit up each day and go to battle. He begins with the belt of truth. I'm going to fly through these. I don't have time. You could do almost a sermon on each one of these. He begins with the belt of truth. And that word truth is the Greek word for aletheia, which it can mean uh, truth and doctrine, but can also mean sincere and truthful and faithful in our disposition. I think that's more of what Paul is getting at right here. We need to approach matters of truth that we find in God's word sincerely, with authenticity, with faithfulness. You can try to fake it till you make it at church. You can try to fake it till you make it in front of everybody here and may get it, may get by, right? People may think, you know, think you're more, maybe more committed and more surrendered than you really are. You can try to fake it at home, right? But you will not be able to genuinely stand against the schemes of the devil if there's not a sincerity in in your heart towards the truth of God's word. This communicates sincerity. That's what he means when he says belt of truth. Second thing he says here is to put on the breastplate of righteousness. All right, so this was a piece of Warfare and ancient warfare that would have been very, very important, protected vital organs like the heart. And so it was a very, very important to you physically, but it's also important to us spiritually, this part of the armor. Now, we studied earlier in this letter a lot about who we are positionally in Christ Jesus before God, right? We, before God, the, the gavels come down on the on the desk, God, our Creator God, has declared us in Christ, His children. We are chosen, we're adopted, we're forgiven, we're forever His, we're children of God. That is who we are positionally in the sight of a holy God. And we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness and live in the light of that truth of who we are positionally. But we can often struggle. Some of you maybe are struggling this morning because maybe in your heart there's this weary insecurity. You're a Christian, but you, you, you kind of slide into this thinking where I got into this thing by grace, but I'm only going to stay in by getting everything right. I'm only going to stay in by, you know, pleasing God. No, you need to put on this armor. You need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. You need to remember again in a fresh way this morning that all of Christ's good work, that all of His purity has been given to you as a believer. You know what that means this morning? That means forever in this moment and forevermore when God looks at me, He doesn't see me and see my busted up spiritual resume that has unfaithfulness plastered all over. He looks at me and he sees me through the precious blood of Jesus Christ and he sees me in the righteousness of Christ. And the more the Holy Spirit, as we put on this breastplate of righteousness, the more the Holy Spirit convinces me of that, the more I walk practically, the more I walk practically who I'm positionally in righteousness. 
Then he says, um, he's piling on gospel armor here. He says, you need to put on gospel shoes. You need um, the right kind of shoes. Now, shoes here, a lot of people think, you know, this is talking about running out and sharing the gospel with readiness, and certainly we do that. But that's not what I think, you know, Paul has in mind right here. You know, shoes were very important in battle for stability, for, you know, having the right footing when you're in battle. And he calls the gospel the gospel of peace. It's because of the gospel that we have peace with God. It's because of the gospel that we're no longer enemies with God. Think about that footing that we have in the presence of God because of Christ. He, we're now His children. He's our Father. In the gospel, we, re, we realize that he, he loves us, that He's for us, not against us. Not only that He loves us, that He likes us, that He delights in us, that He's working for our good. And if you're going to stand firm... If you're going to stand against the schemes of the devil, then you're going to need to be secure in those things. You're going to need to have firm footing right there. Right? If you are thinking wrongly about your relationship with God, you're open to attack. You can't stand in God's strength for you if you're not convinced for, about God's love for you. You need to stand in the gospel of peace. You also need the shield of faith. So those Roman shields, big shields, they would have bound them in leather. And then they would have also, when they went into warfare, especially when they were facing an army who were known for being archers, they would soak those leather-bound shields in water so that when they would go into battle, a lot of times a tactic of an army that had a lot of archers is they would like the... You've probably seen this in a movie, like Gladiator. They'd light the ends of the arrows and it'd be a flaming area. And then they'd be thousands would go into the air and fall down on that opposing army. And, you know, to create as much destruction as possible. But if you had a water-soaked shield, you hold that up, and as that flaming arrow would sink into that shield, it would extinguish the flame. It would eliminate the threat. And he says, spiritually, our enemy, Satan, is relentlessly firing flaming darts in your direction. And what extinguishes those? What is it that extinguishes those? It's found in that piece of armor. It's faith. It's a shield of faith. That's where Adam and Eve went wrong. They began to believe Satan's lie. They were not trusting in God. They stopped believing that God had their best interest at heart. And so the fiery dart from the enemy, it sunk deep into their hearts. It created damage. It created destruction that we're still living in the throes of today. If we could just understand, we're often looking for the extraordinary, demonic activity. And he certainly works in those different kind of ways. But we miss the fact that every sin that leads to destruction in our life begins with us simply shrinking back from the belief that his ways are best. That his ways are good. Shrinking back from them and stepping forward with the false idea that I know better than God. Then he says, put on the helmet of salvation. Putting on a helmet of salvation right here means, it means right thinking. It means guarding your mind. Satan loves to get in our heads and put question marks in our minds, especially when it comes to our salvation. Because he knows the kind of doubt that that creates and how that kind of doubt kills joy and it kills our confidence and it kills our confidence and then it makes us more vulnerable to attack. It makes us more vulnerable to, and susceptible to sinning. And falling to temptation. But you know, this is true. The more confident you are in your salvation, the more confident that you are, that you are forever child of God and nothing can ever change it, nothing can ever separate you from God's love for you, the more confident you are in that, the more committed you'll be in the battle. The more sure you are of God's love for you, the more sure you are that you're saved, the more surrendered you'll be to the Lord. And if you're somebody who 
you struggle with this. You struggle with doubt because you've listened to the whispers of the enemy who come alongside of you. Maybe even this morning, go, look at you. You call yourself a Christian. Up in here singing these songs this morning. I know, I, know what you, I know what you were thinking about this past week. Who do you think you are? You really think that you're a child of God? You really think that you're a Christian if you have placed your faith, not in your work, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ this morning for the forgiveness of your sins? Put the helmet back on this morning. If you think that God's given up on you, if you think that you're a lost cause, if you're a child of God, you need to get this helmet back on your head. You need to, you need to experience a renewed assurance for your salvation this morning. You are eternally secure in Christ Jesus. There are a lot of things that change in our life, a lot of things that go up and down in our life. Our finances go up and down. Our relationships go up and down. Our marriage relationship can go up and down. One of the constants in life is that everything changes. Accept your relationship status with God. In Christ, you are eternally forever saved. And listen, you cannot stand against the schemes of the devil if you're running around without that helmet on. Then he says we need to take up the sword of the Spirit. This is the only offensive weapon that's given in this list. And this is a weapon that Adam and Eve did not wield faithfully in the garden. They did not wield it faithfully as a weapon, as a gift that God had given them to battle against the temptation that they experienced from Satan in the garden. They didn't wield it faithfully. No, they doubted it. They mishandled it. They ultimately rejected it. And what did it lead to? Catastrophic destruction. But what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do when he was in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, and the, the great tempter, the father of lies, comes and meets him there and tempts him in the same way that he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, but where Adam, Adam and Eve failed to faithfully wield the sword of God's word, Jesus wielded it faithfully. Every time he comes to them with a temptation, he, Jesus responds with what it is written, word of God. Satan comes again to second time. Jesus responds, it is written. Third time, it is written. He faithfully wields the word of God as the sword of truth. And that's the way that we engage in spiritual warfare. Our main weapon, Christian, this morning, our main ammunition against the attacks of the enemy is the word of God. You know what that means? That means you need to be reading God's word on your own. A lot of things can distract us from this book. I wonder where that comes from. Because there's power when this book is hidden in our heart. The main ammunition you have, the only way your flesh is going to be restrained, the only way you're going to stand against the schemes of the devil is with God's Word hidden in your heart. That means you need to read it more. If the only time you're reading God's Word is when I'm reading it to you or we're reading it together on Sundays mornings before we get into the text, you're, you're somebody, if you're a Christian, you're somebody running around on an active battlefield without a weapon in your hand. It's foolishness. What did the psalmist say in Psalm 119.11? Think about the, the ownership here. I didn't catch this until this week. I have stored up your word in my heart. I've taken ownership of my discipleship. I've stored your word up in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119.11. Where does the enemy have your number? Where are the fiery darts coming in and hitting you? Where are you more prone to fall in an area to temptation? What is it? Is it bitterness? Is it jealousy? Is it lust? Is it sexual immorality? Is it selfishness? What is it? 
We're all works in progress. All of us have those weak areas where the devil has our number. What you need to do, and I'm going to give you an assignment that can help you this week, Christian, is you need to go and steep yourself in God's word. If it's bitterness about passages that have to do with bitterness, store that in your heart. Memorize it. Meditate it. Meditate on it. If it's lust, steep yourself in passages about that. So in the moment that you're hit with a temptation to lust... You're ready to respond. You say, well, how do I respond? Here's how. When the enemy tempts you, here's what you do. If you're hiding God's word in your heart, you expose that temptation as the lie that it is as you reach for the truth that you've hidden in your heart and then by faith you walk in the light. That's how you battle. And then the last thing, oh, I'm running out of time, but it's just going to take two minutes to get through this. The last thing, we've talked about real warfare. We've talked about real weapons. And then the last thing we have to acknowledge is that we also need to understand that it takes real power. Real power. A lot of action words in this. He says, be strong, put on, take up, stand firm. But we don't need to leave here under the impression that this is us pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps and we can somehow leave this place and win the battle on our own. I love that this passage is bookended with important reminders that we win, that we overcome, that we experience victory over the evil one. In whose strength? The Lord's strength. Look at the beginning of this whole passage. What does he say there? Be strong in who? In the Lord, in the strength of His might. Listen to me carefully. We fight sin. We fight hard. We have responsibility to slay sin on our own. And we fight really hard. But we remember that we fight in a posture of dependence on our victorious king. Who one, has already ultimately defeated the enemy. Who wants to destroy our lives. And two, desires to supply us with his power so that we can experience victory over the evil one ourselves. It's imperative, listen, that we walk onto the battlefield each day with the mentality of a victor. We are not victims. We are victors. We are overcomers. Not because of anything in us. Not because of anything in and of my own strength. Not because I'm awesome. I'm not. I'm unworthy. I don't have what it takes. It's only because of the power and the might of the one who lives in me. The Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We belong to the one. We are indwelt by the victorious spirit of the one who's already defeated the enemy. Yeah, Peter said he's like a lion. Peter said Satan's like a lion. That sounds scary, but I think it's important he says like a lion. He's not the real one. In the end, there's only one real lion in the word of God, and that is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And 2,000 years ago, he once and for all defeated the devil. The defining battle in the war has already taken place. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, through that, the enemy has been defeated. It wasn't, it's not even a fight. It's a first round knock, knockout, night, night. It's over. You say, how can you be sure about that? How can you be sure that the victory is won? How can you be sure that the battle is over? I've read the end of the book. Revelation 20 says the devil, who it says has deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. Jesus has already won. Amen. He staked his claim. He's won the victory. You know what that means? I don't have to run around with this idea that I have to defeat the enemy. The enemy is defeated. Now I stand in the victory that Jesus has already accomplished. 
that Christ is one. I depend on him. I, re- I rely on his power. I depend on his strength and then I don't give an inch. That's the victor's mindset that we're called to run out onto the battlefield with. How do we develop that? How do we maintain that? Here's how. As you draw close to the victorious king himself. As you grow in a knowledge of what he's done for you. You say, well, how do I do that? Verse 18. Praying at all times with prayer and supplication. The Bible shows us that as we daily depend on God in a continuous posture of prayer, as we abide in Him, that's where God unleashes His power. That's where God empowers us to think right. That's where God helps us to think about who we are in His sight. That's where He helps us to put these pieces of the armor on. That's where He empowers us to be overcomers. Think about that. The greatest thing that you could do to help you stand firm in the battle today is to spend alone time with Him. And what's probably the one thing that we had the most difficulty doing with regularity in our life as Christians? I've been walking with Jesus for 22 years, and to this day, it is still a fight. To this day, there's still a temptation to rush through my time alone with God in His Word and in prayer. And not just to rush through it, sometimes to avoid it altogether. So many things are reaching for our time, trying to steal our time. Why do you think that is? Because the enemy knows the game. If he can keep us from drawing near the victorious one, he can keep us from maintaining that a mindset of a victor in Christ Jesus, and he can keep us from plugging into his power, and he can attack us easier. But I want, I want you to leave encouraged this morning. You can stand firm. You can stand against the schemes of the evil one. You can... Draw near to Jesus this morning and leave here and experience victory this week. You don't have to fall to temptation. I know the battle's real. I know the struggle's real. I know the attack on your family is real. I know that the fiery darts that are fired in your direction feel nonstop. But as we draw close to the victorious one, hey, there's power. There's power in that because what you realize is none of those things, none of those attacks, none of that, those things that, that the enemy threatens... None of those will have the last word in my life. The enemy will not have the last word in my life. He's already defeated. You may have been spiritually knocked on your rear end this last week, or this last month, or this last year. You don't have to stay there. In Christ, you can stand up. You can stand firm. The battle may be intense. We get to the end of this passage... You can even see the intensity building and boiling in Paul's life. He's like, y'all pray for me. Like, I've spoken the gospel boldly. I'm here because of that. I need help. I need y'all to pray for me that I'll keep speaking it boldly. Why would he say that if he was not struggling with speaking it boldly? But you know what he does? He keeps pressing into the victorious one and he keeps standing firm and he keeps standing firm and he keeps preaching the gospel and he gets knocked down and he gets back up because the victory is won because Jesus has defeated the enemy and he keeps standing up and he keeps standing up and he keeps standing up and so they chop his head off. And even in that moment he stands because he knows that even that won't have the last word in his life. That's what we're talking about. That's the framework that you have to see this battle within. The victory is won. 
It may feel intense right now, but none of that stuff's going to have the last word in your life. The victory is won. Fight from that place. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from it. Let's pray.